Hello. Welcome to episode 110 of Lunar Poetry Podcast. My name is David Turner. How are you lot doing? Before I introduce this episode, I've got some great news to share. Lunar Poetry Podcast has been awarded a grant for the arts by Arts Council England. This means that everything we release in 2018 will be funded by the money we received in this grant. We've got some great guests lined up for this year, but rather than listing names now, I'm just going to suggest that you go over and follow us at silent underscore tongue on Twitter or Lunar Poetry Podcast on Facebook and Instagram or over at our website, lunarpoetrypodcast.com, where you can also download a transcript of this episode. Getting this money means that I'll be able to get around the country to interview people rather than waiting for poets to come to Bristol. And the funding will also be used to develop the new A Poem A Week podcast in which we bring you, you know, A Poem A Week. As with all Lunar Poetry Podcast episodes, A Poem A Week is available to download or subscribe to via SoundCloud, iTunes for Apple users, Stitcher for Android users, and hopefully anywhere else you get your podcasts from. There is also an exciting third project in the making. I can't talk about that at the moment. If you follow us on social media or on the blog over at our website, you'll find out as soon as we make it public. Another initial use of the funding, and I'm really sorry to any of you that aren't interested in any technical stuff, but I've used the money to buy some preamps for my microphones and invest in some new editing software. This should mean that this and all future episodes should sound clearer and louder than those in the archive, which is great for those of you listening on public transport, on your way to work, or with toddlers demanding milkshakes and yogurts. And for those of you that are interested, I'm now using Reaper to edit audio files, which I'm pretty happy with. It's much better than Audacity, which I've been using so far. In this episode, I'm talking to poet Caroline Bird about her latest collection, In These Days of Prohibition, out through Carcanet Press. I met up with Caroline at her home in South East London to talk about how the collection developed and how the writing and editing process was different from that of her previous four collections. I've been waiting a long time for an opportunity to talk to Caroline after seeing her chair a conversation at the National Poetry Library a couple of years ago. I really love In These Days of Prohibition and can't recommend it highly enough, so I was excited to sit down and have a chat with Caroline about it. But also having been lucky enough to travel the country and speak to hundreds of poets, very few people are spoken of so fondly as Caroline by other poets. She's definitely in the same category as Jacob Samler Rose and Malika Booker in that respect. So it was great to be able to sit down for a couple of hours and find out for myself why so many poets regard her so highly. In this conversation, we cover the usual poetry staples of guilt and shame and denial and how all those things get in the way of us loving ourselves. You know, the usual cheery stuff. I'm going to stop talking now. 
But before I go, if you enjoyed this conversation or any of our other 109 episodes, please do tell your friends. Word of mouth recommendations are invaluable to us. And after a few months of being a little bit sporadic in uploading episodes, the Arts Council funding will guarantee that there'll be an interview uploaded once a month for the rest of 2018. And tell your friends that, eh? Here's Caroline. Eye contact. I see a small room light up in your face. Like your face is a dark sleeping mansion. But something is moving. Someone's awake. In a back room and they've switched a light on. But why? What stranger is raising her head in your face at this time of the evening, when our judgement lies slumbering in bed? Yet the silhouettes seem so appealing like we've quarrelled or shared some transgression. Your night wanderer, but what does she know? Will she turn if I yell the right question? Will she wave? Will she come to the window? Yes. Now she's staring so clear, so apart, unblinking from that visage with a view. And you think that I'm scouring your heart, but I'm not. I'm just looking back at you from this attic I live in at midnight to the woman who's waving from that hidden room you don't visit during the daylight. It's not locked, it's just slightly forbidden. Yet, for this moment, she's owning the space, owning mine before dawn flicks the lights on to reveal every quarter of your face. And I can't see which room's the secret one. Thank you very much, Caroline. Thank you for joining us. Thank Um, you. Yeah, we'll start with just a brief introduction from yourself, about yourself. I really have to find a new phrase for that because I keep saying about yourself by yourself but I think people know what I mean I think yeah I think it's clear and it is the beginning of the of our chat so it makes yeah, yeah, sense it makes in a lot of sense. context um I'm Caroline Bird I am a poet and a playwright I have uh five books of poetry published and my most recent came out about six months ago and it's called In These Days of Prohibition I'm going to slide it across the table because I really love this book and the main reason we're chatting today is because of In These Days of Prohibition, out through Carcanet. And I've just, I had a Twitter conversation recently with Jane Kamein from Nine Arches, and we were talking about, I I think it was Raymond Antrobus instigating this conversation about trying as much as possible to read poems in chronological order, reading collections from start to finish, basically, and trying to get a sense of what the poet wanted. And then the whole conversation started about people dipping in, especially if you're in a bookshop, just if you don't know who it is, it's natural to dip in. And I agreed completely with Roman's point because of the editing process that I've been through from this. And I sort of, I talked to a lot of editors about the compiling of books, but also had to admit, I never do it myself. You know, I'm I'm too impatient. But this one I started and just sat at the table and just read it handed it to my wife Lizzie and she did the same thing and we were both like you could see the, the look on our faces the, the, the tension was building up as we wanted to talk about the poems to each other yeah. I really love this book that makes, really fantastic. Oh, well, that makes me really happy and, <laughs> yeah. it's, and it makes me really really happy that you read it in order because 
um, I, do, I think that's so important with poetry books because, I mean, you wouldn't start a novel and just open it in the middle and go, oh, I don't know what's happening, you know, because you just <laughs> know that there's going to be a, an arc to it. Yes. And even though generally there's not a narrative through a poetry book, definitely thinking about it in terms of yeah the journey of one poem to each other to another and the poems also they have a kind of like chemical reaction to each other and they start speaking to each other and and it's such a long process putting the order together I, what I do is I lay all the poems out on the floor or sometimes on the walls you know like that scene from a beautiful mind when it's like oh he's gone mad and and then you I kind of like pounce on the poems like that one needs to go there that one needs to go there and this book was especially kind of ordered because I mean, this sounds cliche, but um, I was, you know, crawling towards some kind of hope, but I had to go <laughs> really, really, really dark until I could get there. And there's a, the last few poems of the book I actually you know, wrote last and uh, the book couldn't finish till I'd, I'd found them. So, yeah, it, I, I think it is really important to read books in order. Otherwise, you're not actually experiencing the, the full book. Yes. I mean, uh, you obviously just mentioned there about the final poems being written towards the end of the process. How natural is it to write in this? I mean, obviously not every poem is written in the order it's gone into the no, book because then that wouldn't be an editorial process anyway. <laughs> yeah, no. um, I'd just be chronological yeah, process. Yeah. Um, actually, I've got a really fantastic collection by Anne Sexton at home, which is yeah. more like diary entry, poems as diary entries, and, the, and it's an exercise in just laying stuff out in chronological order, and I think it's quite interesting to see why that doesn't necessarily work, even yeah, though it's a fantastic think, book. Yeah. It does highlight, there's a statement by Anne at the beginning that says that this isn't the right way perhaps to lay out a book, but mm -hmm. it felt natural because of the emotions at the time. Who helped you through that process? Do you, is it something that you do yourself? One of my favourite pictures, uh, poetry pictures, if that's a thing, is um, there's a photograph of Tom Chivers and Melissa Lee Horton walking through sunshine, and yeah. it's laid out on the floor, and I really like love that aspect. Did anyone walk through those poems with you? N not with this book, no. Actually, it was um, it was quite a personal process. Obviously, um, my editor, my publisher, helped me kind of go. Oh, are you sure about that line? And you know, maybe this needs to be swapped around. And kind of the the forensic bits afterwards. But in terms of the order, no. It was. I think it's also because it's quite personal. So it's in three sections. And originally, I gave each section a kind of really um, crude title like I think like the first section was called something like intoxication and then the third second section I knew this wouldn't wouldn't be the final <laughs> and the second section was called oh no the first section was called inebriation the second section was called intoxication and the last one was something something like redemption or something really really crass and crap but it was just so that I'd ki I kind of could know in these broad strokes the worlds that I was treading on in each section and then Afterwards, those those horrible, crude titles got replaced with um, epigraphs, and the first one was a, was a quote from John Ashbery, which says, uh, "Suppose this poem were about you, would you put in the things I've carefully left out?" Which I love. And then the then the second section was a quote from a Leonard Cohen song, which says, um, "Is your passion perfect? No, do it once again." And then the last section was from a James Tate poem, which. Uh, goes, um, uh, but we still believe we shall come through it. I signal this news by lifting a little finger. And that expressed what I was doing in each section a lot more, with a lot more subtlety. <laughs> but that's really, that's really enlightening to hear in, 
it's something that you don't see much from collections is the, the, the shoving your working as it were and talking about those yeah. things because this I suppose you, you need <laughs> well, yeah, but you but you do need those stage directions for yourself almost don't you yeah. um in your writing and in the editing process mm-hmm. because i suppose at least even if those titles now are hugely embarrassing to you they are a really good insight of what your basic narrative and drive was through the book. Yeah. I really like that idea about um, you talking about the last title being uh, Feed Their Own Redemption in yeah. some way. I really loved the way that the book aimed towards a feeling of wanting redemption, redemption but yeah. didn't expect it through the creating the yeah, creation no, of this book because a lot of yeah. books do sort of expect that just by, by compiling yeah. something, redemption will come from that. Oh yeah, no, and I had to stumble upon it because, like, I didn't feel it. So much of the book is about shame, you know, a, sh- a shame around uh, addiction and shame around um, fucking up a relationship and cheating and, you know, letting myself down and all of that stuff. And so when I, you know, in the, the often writing poems, there's, a, there's an element of self punishment to, to it. Sometimes you, you're not always well, writing to make yourself feel better, sometimes you're writing to underline an insult that you have towards yourself. But then the poem will speak back to you as you're writing it and often is kinder to you than than you are to yourself. It's funny how um, different events and talking to different people seemingly disparate suddenly come together. But I saw Luke Kennard read last week in in Bath and he was talking about adding character voices mm-hmm. or second characters in order to question himself as a writer yeah and it, it, something just linked between what you said there and these voices this feeling this overwhelming feeling of guilt through the whole book <laughs> but not it's not a, it's not a sorrowful attempt at seeking redemption from people it's, it's it's quite an honest attempt at showing how you can feel guilt but not necessarily continue to carry the guilt you know the guilt doesn't have to go away what am I trying to say you don't necessarily have to push aside the guilt to move on from it you can accept it and but there's something interesting you just said there about this feeling of having this nagging voice and showing up your own failings which Luke uses this other voice to do and he finds it necessary to use this other voice where you seem to be able to use your own voice very well well I think that's a new tactic with with this book or or rather like I shed a tactic that I used that I had in my previous books where there's a kind of misunderstanding that's that that poems that are surreal are somehow not personal when actually you know it's sometimes they're so personal that you have to wear three masks in order to say what you want to say like it's almost like um like a being on hot sand and it's hurt so much all you can do is dance and so Definitely my last collection before this one, everything was still so raw. I couldn't write poems that were directly speaking to pain or, or they, they had to come in from an angle, right? And so there are poems that are all about the same stuff. But, you know, I, I would write about a woman who thinks she's Nina from the seagull who um, ends up going around supermarkets saying sorrowful things to people at fish counters, right? And the, then the poem becomes, like, so odd and sprawling. But it's the same feeling, but it's just wearing, like, three masks, you know? And then with this book, I, I thought, well, I've, I have done that. So maybe the next angle is... 
a little less angle and if I just make my mask a little bit thinner what will that do? Probably maybe in the, ne in the next book I'll, I'll, I'll be completely impenetrable but um, yeah, yeah for this one I, I decided to occasionally look myself in the eye and occasionally end on a line that wasn't a swerve. So, so one of these things is about, about like final lines. Generally, if a poem felt painful to me, the, the penultimate line would, would, would have the kind of emotion in it. And then the last line would be a kind of like a look away or a punchline or a laugh or a, you know, snigger and um, like the pendulum swinging off, right? And then with these poems, a lot of the time I, I decided to grab the pendulum while it was bang in the centre and end there and see what that did. I'm not saying that either um, uh, way of writing is, is better, like it's just, you know, it was no, it's, new It's for interesting me. to, yeah, to hear that conscious decision because yeah. one of the quick notes, I don't tend to make notes before I interview people because it, it spoils the flow of the conversation yeah. I find, but I did put down the first and last lines, mainly because Again, going back to a conversation with my good friend, Melissa Lee Horton, it's something I don't really agree with, except for when it works. And she, we were having this discussion about the importance of a, a good opening line. Yeah. And I think this book has a fantastic opening <laughs> line and a half, which is brilliant, which I'm not going to read because I want to do it justice. If I flick through quick, I'm going to spend five seconds looking for this. Okay. Because there was a last line, just because you mentioned it, that I really felt did exactly that. It ended with a bang and a yeah. pop. And I... Uh, from the fear, last night in bed, your arms hurt like a jolted seatbelt. I don't know whether I've taken what you've said in slightly wrong way, but it no, did exactly. feel like you've deliberately, that couldn't go anywhere else. No. You can't go anywhere from that point. Yeah. And it's so beautiful because it really sums up, I think the reason I like it is because it really sums up those feelings of guilt associated to loving someone and inflicting yourself on them. Yeah. Which seems to be a common theme yes. in here. Um, I'm thinking a lot at the moment about guilt. Inflicting yeah. yourself upon someone. Yeah, but, but you, you know, people that have sort of dealt with um, addiction or any kind of mental health problems this is definitely something I've felt in the past with dealing with my own bipolar and the guilt of, yeah, exactly that. I can't think of a better way to put it, but inflicting my own shit yeah. into, onto someone else's life because it is unfortunately a huge consequence of falling in love with someone and then falling in love with you yeah and yeah it is a recurring theme of like um you know feeling undeserving and all of that stuff but there's also a recurring theme of, of denial because denial is is really imaginative right think about all the things that we say when we're trying not to tell the truth and like a lot of the first half of the book kind of plays around with that and plays around with the the links between denial and, and imagery. So the first poem in the book, I'll just tell you a little preamble about how it came about. So in my early 20s, after a series of kind of unenjoyable um, adventures, I ended up in a rehab facility in the middle of the Arizonian desert, right? And when you get to these places, you're given this questionnaire and uh, it had all of these very frank questions about how I've been treating myself and suicide attempts and all of this stuff and obviously when you get to one of these places you're, you're actually you're in the least honest place mentally that you could be you know you and 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 you are so shifty inside your own mind 
And I went back to my room in the rehab and I translated this questionnaire into a poem, right? So I think a line about psycho psychosis became, have you started to look at pigeons like they know something? You know, and a line about, and a question about um, suicide became, does the ceiling occasionally ripple? You know, I translated the whole thing. And then the counsellor found out that I'd been doing this to all of the worksheets. I'd been creating these surreal poems. And he called me to one side and said, what are you doing? And I was like, well, this is how I understand the world. I'm a, you know, I'm a poet. And he said, well, it seems like you are not partaking in the therapy. You are like deflecting by writing. And he took my notebooks away from me and my poetry, like, poetry books by other people that I'd brought. And um, he forced me to be alone with my thoughts, which was horrendous. He accused me of using poetry to hide from myself. And then a couple of years ago, this is now like a decade later, I, I remembered that, that what felt like an accusation at the time of, of using poetry to hide from myself. And I thought, I think there is some truth in that, just in the way that you have this desire to confess things, but not to tell any of the facts, especially when you're writing you know, for want of a better word, surrealism or hyperrealism, is that you're, you're putting this, this mask onto the pain and presenting it to the world. And you're dealing with the unspoken all the time. And maybe there's an element of, if you're constantly dealing with the unspoken, there is an element of not speaking it to yourself either. So I, that was part of the reason why with this book, I wanted to be conscious of that. So some of the poems are evading, but they're kind of conscious of the fact they're doing that. There's like one um, about these like four uh, girls who are trying to find Buddha in the middle of the desert and they're searching for this temple and they think it's going to solve all of their problems and make them be uh, clean forever. Then they get to the temple and they decide that they can't smoke in there so they're not going to bother. You know, and, and then the, and the poem ends on a kind of, well, what can we learn from a little fat man anyway? You know, it ends on a little swerve. But that's a little bit what I'm talking about in terms of denial at the end of a poem. Sometimes a poem will get to the door of the temple, if you like, and it'll go, oh, yes, yeah, all right, see ya. So I wanted to write poems about denial using, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, I've, I've taught myself round in a spiral. But as the book goes along, I think it starts to shed that tactic and rather to use surrealism to tell the truth rather than to uh, skip around it. Because I, I wanted to kind of prove that counsellor wrong and go, you know what, I can write like me and reveal myself as well as hide. I can do both. And I suppose deciding to do that had a, the byproduct was, of course, the shame starts to get eroded because when you decide that you are good enough to disclose, you start to be able to look at yourself more in the mirror. And I suppose that's the point, isn't it? You, It's okay to both be evasive in your writing and confrontational yes. as long as it's for the, as long as it fits what you're writing about and I think that yeah. that swerved the, the four 
women in the desert. That swerve fits perfectly because they're all there evading what's, of course. what's wrong, aren't they? And like, I, I, you know, it, it doesn't make sense for poems to be relentlessly honest all the time in a um, in easy way because people are, people can't do that. People can't be always simply authentic, whatever that means, and uh, and put all their cards on the table in every poem because it's, it doesn't reflect how life is. It's actually something that I've been speaking to a lot about or speaking a lot about in conversations on the podcast and both with uh, poets in in real life, yeah. well, which I do quite yeah. a lot. One of my main gripes with spoken word and poetry slams mm-hmm. is this this pressure to be honest and confrontational yeah. because you end up basically with what you're saying there. If, if, you've, if there's a pressure that you have to write in a certain style, it won't fit every poem that you're writing. Yeah. Um, and I suppose that's, yeah, that's, it's a danger for every writer to feel like, well, this is my style. This is how I deal with, I either yeah. make a joke out of everything because it's just like your personality. If you're the kind of person yeah. that makes a joke out of everything, you won't deal with everything. And exactly. if you're the kind of person that is just, everything's laid out there, it won't necessarily do you much good either, being the opposite. Mm-hmm. So it's all about situationally, which suits, isn't it, I suppose? Well, also, yeah, I think there's a slight misunderstanding of, of the word honest, right? Mm. Because no one is relentlessly brave. I mean, that's kind of an oxymoron. If you can do it all the time, then it's not bravery, is it? And and some subject matters, talk about conform fitting content, some subject matters, the pain is uh, clearer in them if they are more evasive or held more lightly, like it's like it's on fire. You know, if you if you communicate a very difficult truth in a very simple way, what you are saying there is, I've got to a place where this is easier for me to hold, right, and and to look at, and so and sometimes that does happen. Like in this book, I have a few poems where I feel like I've got enough distance from what I'm talking about to hold it at arm's length and talk about it plainly right but that's not going to happen all the time sometimes you're going to be in the in the midst of it and things are going to be flying around your head and so the poem's going to reflect that the poem's going to be the opposite of emotion recollected in tranquility it's going to be emotion recollected in a room full of constantly slamming doors and horns going off you know and that that's going to reflect that kind of truth or you know sometimes a poem's going to be about yeah, well, well, denial, and and as a result, it's going to uh, try to trick you every step of the way and not let the audience in. And um, poetry should is about attempting to be honest, right? If like, who knows what honest whether you're being honest anyway. Like sometimes I'll write a poem and think, okay, I think I've, I think that's what I think, you know. And then the next day I'm like, what a load of shit, like what a load of bollocks. But then that makes you write the next one because you kind of constantly go in. That thing I wrote yesterday, that well, the, the 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 river has changed since then, right? So I need to step into a different river now and and create a new poem. And that perpetual hunger and that perpetual feeling of of not really having grabbed the air properly <laughs> makes you keep writing. Whereas I think if if we put this um, expectation on on poets to feel like they have to be truth tellers, it's it's more likely to um, write poems that feel false because human beings aren't truth tellers. I mean, there are a few people who you're like, oh my God, you you are like uncanning, can, cannily, what, uncannily, 
even the word, sorted, you know. Then it, sometimes if uh, I'll meet a poet like that and they'll hear their work and I'll go, all right, I, I, I believe you, you are rare, but most people aren't like that. No, and I think <laughs> the danger comes when assumptions are made about certain poets and certain collections sure. for being completely honest. Yeah, well, because the, the, then, the because word then, is very strange. I, f- I find like... that this... Um, Expectation for poets to be honest completely baffling. What does, I've o- never... what does honesty mean in that co- like context? Does that just mean being plain about stuff? Because actually, that's not going to capture the full difficulty of being alive all the time, is it? But neither is being relentlessly difficult and obscure either. You know, I've used the word relentlessly about six times in the last five minutes. Forgive me. Like when when I get like, passionate about things, I start like sounding like a wanker. I say relentlessly, constantly, and sometimes I start saying inherently. But so forget that. Yeah, I th- and I think it's confusing because sometimes I'll teach teenagers, or and they feel like they've got to go to the most dangerous subject matter but they've got to find answers in their poems. And they feel a huge burden of responsibility, not just to the piece of paper and what they're discovering on it, but to a future audience and to um, other people who might have experienced similar problems that they feel they should be speaking to. And they have all of, the, all of these kind of these burdens that they bring to, to, to poems and, it, and, it, and it, it stops you being able to be light and to play because you need to be able to, when you're writing a first draft, take your pain or, or whatever you want to write about and juggle with it, right? And uh, look at it from all different angles and uh, mix it around like a Rubik's Cube and, and, you know, split it open. You need to be able to be careless with it and reckless and rash. And whereas if you, if you feel like, oh, my God, this is, this is the truth and I've got to treat it like a precious object made of, you know, glass and skin, then you're going to lose your sense of humour, for one thing, and you're, and you're going to be careful. And carefulness is something I, I think you should want to reserve for your like sixth draft, or your seventh draft, not your first draft, you know. But that's not their fault. That's this kind of weird thing we've got going on now. It, t- it took me, I, I used to do a lot of improvised stuff on stage and I, and I really enjoyed that. Yeah. The writing process of not having a pen and paper, just making stuff up, up, as I went along. And something, it was actually getting more. Uh, it was the process of getting deeper into editing this series right? mm-hmm. and, and looking for people and thinking conversations. It made me really careful. Yeah. And my writing became really stunted. Mm-hmm. And it took me a long time to get back to being able to play around with things and yeah. just start throwing ideas exactly. at paper. And what I began to do was just write diary entries and try to forget about the act of writing a poem and, and then pick parts out and then shave things down and uh, or try to add to that so i, I really relate with that to yeah. that statement in that i think you're completely correct correct in saying that there's there is that pressure to be honed immediately yes yeah you know, well you need to have the big block of marble first yeah. in order to make the sculpture out of it and you might read a poem and it's the most kind of delicate beautiful sculpted you know but it hasn't i mean i not gonna speak for every poem I'm sure sometimes poems do come out like a um, blaze of lightning and they just appear but um, most of the time they don't start like that at all I think if you 
know what you want the poem to be or what you want it to say before you start it, you're going to limit the discovery process. You, you want to be able to just hang out in the privacy of your own imagination, like randomly opening doors and boxes and, and, and also not to think anyone's going to read it. If I knew that all of these poems were going to be read, even though obviously I, I do want, did want them to get, do want to be, you know, published, but when I was actually writing the poems, each one I'd say to myself, all right, this is just for me. No one's reading this one. Otherwise, I wouldn't want to write it. And there was this feeling when the book first came out, when I was out on stage reading them out and thinking, God, this is very personal. And then I was going, well, why did you put them in a book, you twat? Like, what are you... But if I'd written them with an audience in mind, or, or it would have changed what I said. We, I'd like to talk about that some more, but could yeah. we have a poem yes. before we do move on to that? I'll read a little uh, sonnet called To Be Explicit. I want to rip you open like a sack of doves. Press my skin to the stir of hindered flight. Feel the flutter swell into a wheeling room. An exodus fathoming air like a scream, a strobe lit punch. My whole sky crammed with your lost pressure. Pocket, just one souvenir feather, and leave you in peace. I love that poem so much. I've been sharing it with so many people. I just, yeah. Thank you. I don't it's often too, read it. I mean, no. It's because it's, you know, filthy. <laughs> <laughs> but when, you know, when, when else can you read it other than an educational podcast? Exactly, yeah. To just tell me if I've made the wrong assumption, but do you feel like people, do you feel, find it odd that people pick up collections like yours and read poems as statements rather than starts of conversation? You know, when we were talking about that idea that people are taking, I think maybe that's where this desire for honesty comes from, or the mm -hmm. assumption for honesty, because they feel like yeah. you're telling them something rather than yeah. asking of them, perhaps. Uh, yeah, they definitely. I have a poem upstairs on the wall called uh, A Fragrant Cloud, which was written by James Tate. I must have read it about... Like thousands of times because it's right outside the bathroom and every time I read it it takes me somewhere else I get slightly you know something slightly different from it and it's never stopped doing that and for me that's because it's alive when poems are working they're like people you meet them on different days and they change according to who you are on that day and what mood <laughs> they seem to be in and how you're perceiving them and what you've learned since you last saw them and they don't have a fixed message to them. And that's why like poems use imagery as their main form of communication, because they work on a, on a dream level. And you can talk about the things in between the stuff we pretend to know. And you can add pictures to the wordlessness. So the idea of a statement doesn't quite fit into that. Because I think if you can paraphrase a poem, there's no point writing it. You know, you might have an article or, you know, or just or like a great quote or something. Whereas um, a poem, you want people to kind of dream it and then wake up from it and then go, oh, what did, what did that dream have that? What did that mean? You know, of course, there's an enjoyable element to the people trying to figure it out, but only if they don't think there's a, there's a fixed answer, right? I think often the reason why 
sometimes people feel conned by poetry is because perhaps us as poets, we haven't quite made it clear that we find difficult poems difficult too, right? Like, I don't understand what John Ashbery means, right? But I enjoy the poems and I enjoy not, I, I enjoy, I understand the mystery of them and I enjoy the mystery of them. I understand that they feel like experiences, right? And they change, but I, I don't uh, solve them in my head. Whereas sometimes, I th and I think we don't say that enough. We don't say like, oh, w when we read these really obscure poems, they're obsc it's not like we've figured out a code that we haven't let anyone else in on. And so, of course, people are going to be looking for statements in poems if we're not taught to enjoy mystery. I mean, we're not taught that in schools, are we? Poems are often, often taught like crossword puzzles. I saw this horrible thing on the um, internet a few days ago where uh, a mother posted her son's homework and it was um, to write a sonnet. And it was a graph of 14 like, lines with boxes for each word and how many like syllables should be in each box. And I just thought, oh God, like that actually looks like a crossword puzzle as well. And that's gonna, that would kill poetry for you. When you, if you feel like it's a, a butterfly that's got to be nailed to the wall or that somehow you've got to start with something incredibly clever and then translate it perfectly into, um, into a poem, you know, that can then be decoded back into a statement. When actually poems are much closer to dreams. In the way we know that all our anxieties and passions and, and yearnings are inside it, but we don't quite know we can't quite locate which bit communicates what, <laughs> you know. What do you think we can do as poets to change that? Because I, one of the one of the problems I find in galleries with sort of contemporary and ab ab yeah. abstract art exhibitions is if you over-explain things, it's sort of it's taking away the point a lot totally. of times. You you it, in trying to make things more accessible, often you remove the mystery, yeah. which is part of the magic of it. Do you have any feelings of what can be done in order to make it not more accessible? I suppose that is what I mean, but I don't, that's not quite the right word, but what would make it more approachable to people? Yeah, well, it, it's, it's about us talking more about what we don't understand. Yes. And that sense and kind of narrative conclusions is, is something that we put onto the world rather than something that is naturally there. You know, actually, at the at the core of of most most things is just this eternal question of what the hell. You know, do you remember when you were like five years old and you and you look at your own hands and you suddenly think, oh my god, I'm me looking out of my own eyes. You I don't know, talk about eyeballs. Sorry, sorry. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> well, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Still haven't figured out what like the mystery of eyeballs, and and you you, you get so fr like freaked out, but in this magical way of thinking about consciousness and and oh, I'll, I'll never be anyone else. I'll never be inside anyone else's head, and and this is so strange. And and then as we grow up, in order you know to um, function. I think we put the filters 
on ourselves, those kind of blinkers, and we don't access the strangeness all the time unless we go off the rails or, you know, fall off something. And 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 we stop we stop remembering that we all felt like that. Like and that we we are all terrified of death and we all don't know quite we all can't remember how we got here, right? And we all don't know what's in the sky. And, and all of these simple childlike questions of whys, they were never answered. We just stopped asking them. And so if we can tap back into that, which everyone feels, poetry is, I think, could be properly enjoyed by everyone, not by changing what it is, but by us changing this expectation of sense. Right, that everything has to be decoded. For example, every night, everyone <laughs> dreams, right? And we all know that somehow our brains have this uh, surreal, surrealist painting alter ego that we can uh, yeah, translate our days into, into essentially these kind of strange art films. But then we wake up and we forget about it and we get on with our normal day, but we spend half of our lives in this place of mystery. And if it was allowed more, that you can read a poem and go, oh, I've got no idea what that's about, but it reminds me of having no idea what my relationship's about or having no idea um, how I feel about this or, you know, and then we could enjoy it more. So often I'll read poems by my favorite poets, like for example, uh, James Tate or Salima Hill, or, and I still could not tell you in plain words what they mean at all. For example, there's this poem called I Take Back All My Kisses by James Tate, and it starts with the line, they got me because if the forest has no end, I'll go naked. And I remember reading this when I was 13 and thinking, yeah, that's how they got me. They got me because if the forest has no end, I'll go naked too. And... I don't know what that means in plain words. I just know that I understood it in in the centre of me somehow. Don't know. Don't know how. But I mean, I I, I, enjoy, I spend enjoy a lot of my time reading what is sort of self-titled as experimental literature, yeah. and sometimes my wife will pick up what I'm reading and she'll be like, "I don't get it. It makes me feel stupid," and yeah. I completely get that. And I keep trying to remind her that the only difference between her and I is that I don't let it make me feel stupid. And that's not like I've got some control over what I'm reading. But it's really interesting you made the point about being a child and viewing yourself. Yeah. I still distinctly remember reading encyclopedias as a kid and not understanding anything, but really enjoying phrases and the language of it. And I think that's what's taught out of us, isn't it, often in yeah. school, is that we, we lose the sense of finding beauty in the rhythm of words and it becomes a logic puzzle exactly. to be solved. And I think it's in that part, if you can't get the logic or the mathematics or the algorithms behind it, of course it's going to make you feel stupid because yeah. you'll feel like you failed at something. Yeah. And it, it disempowers you from the ability to say, well, I just don't like that. I'm not yeah. an idiot. No. <laughs> I just, that's exactly. not for me. I'll move on and find something else. Exactly. Because as much as I enjoy mystery, there is a lot of poetry that I I don't enjoy the mystery of. It, it won't, it, you know, um, 
hit me on 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 a kind of deeper level and but it doesn't make me think oh i'm just not never going to read a poem again like just like when you're a teenager and you know you listen to music and you you flick through songs on your um on your iPod, not that I had my, you know, I don't want to say Walkman. Um, <laughs> Mini disc player. Yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> Who had one of those? And you just, um, you go, that, well, that doesn't, that doesn't speak to my ears on some level. And you just trust your instincts because you know that it's, you're allowed to have taste. And, that, and that, that's a part of being a person. The music you don't like is just as much you as the music you do like. That is made very clear when people are young. And, and the same can be, should be able to be said of, of, of poetry. You're allowed to hate 98% of it because the 2% you're gonna, then you'll love with a total passion. And it's not a judgment call, it's just one of what's, what speaks to you. And you're allowed to go into a library and flick through books or just re read the first poem and instinctively read more or instinctively not read more until you find something that Kind of, there's a bit, there's a, 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 an image at the end of uh, Donna Tartt's book, The Goldfinch, where she says that when art speaks to you, it's like a, a man in in an alleyway, kind of going, Psst, you, come over here, you know, and handing you a secret scroll or something. It feels like no one ever has discovered this poet before, right? And the secrecy of that and the kind of frisson of it, most people have had that with music. But you know, it's, it's also wonderful when you have it with a with a poet. Yeah, I mean, a, yeah, a less poem. literary way of putting it. Immediately sprang to my mind is Art Brute song "My Little Brother Just Discovered Rock and Roll." Yeah, and it's that idea of it's really great because I'm 19 years older than my sibling, Tegan, and to see them go through uh, a process of discovering music that is that I've lived through, and then and then realizing that's why my dad laughed at me for exactly. for, for certain things. But I think. Going back to this idea of um, making things more approachable, I really do wish a lot of uh, poets would share more their discarded drafts with an yeah. explanation as to why they don't work, because I think that's a, a really invaluable insight as to, because the, the act of discarding drafts that don't work and discovering what isn't right for you is so, it's equally as valuable as discovering what is right. It's this whole yeah. thing of going through and de deciding what the 98% of your own thoughts are not right True. to be put down and I think maybe that could be part of explaining if you can explain what you didn't want in a poem mm -hmm. it's as good an explanation as to what was left and give people the space to interpret it in the way you know because it like we're yeah. saying it, it may be a way to explain what the process was to building that thing without yeah. revealing the magic behind it or putting the carpet out around it or I do I do agree with you I also like would not want to do it myself. I it's think hard, it, it's isn't it? because yeah. um, all of those previous drafts. That's when you're in. I'm in the privacy of my own oh, imagination. So, sorry, I think not previous drafts to poems. Oh right, poems that don't work. Completely discarded poems. I think because ah, yeah. because showing because you're still showing the working up to something, okay. and, and it would perhaps remove some of the, yeah. the sheen from it. But you know, we've all got poems where we're like, that's just not going to go anywhere. Yeah. It's still probably but, a difficult act exactly. to share. Pro yeah, yeah, probably is. But, but, but it's, I, I agree that it's really important to talk about um, like failure and that 
so one of my favourite poets called uh, Winslow, Winslow Zimborska. And she won the a Nobel Prize for Literature in 1999. And she stood up to collect her Nobel Prize. And she said, I don't know anything about poetry. She said, um, inspiration comes from a continuous I don't know. That's the direct quote. And, and this gives just a very, very long speech about how every time she starts a poem, she does no idea what she's doing. And that not knowing and really starting from nothing is one of the hardest things to do. Um, because actually, we're so scared of failure that even if we think we're just writing whatever comes into our head, often we'll be guiding it. We'll be, it's a bit like staring, staring at a, a clear pond, right? And you know that somehow, just by staring at it, you have to make objects lift to the surface. And you've done it before somehow, but you can't remember how you did it but you're not sure if you can do it again. And most of the time, we'll, we'll try and cheat. We'll get out our handbag and go, well, I'll just throw a few objects in first just to, just to make sure there are some in there, you know? And, and then, you're, then you're writing a version of a poem you've written before or you're, or you're um, preempting the discovery and it's not gonna be magical. But there's always that element of just trying, to, you know, you're creating something from nothing and, Sometimes the poem is going to be an absolute mess. Sometimes one, one little object's gonna to rise to the surface of it and you'll get like a dribble of two good lines and then it'll all just sink back under, you know? There's no, there's no guarantee. And so the failure has to, has to be part of, of writing. There has to be a whole book um, that you didn't write for every book or a whole book that you didn't show anyone for the book that you end up publishing because otherwise it wouldn't be a process of discovery and you wouldn't be taking any risks and you'd be trying to write a successful poem and that's always going to be awful, isn't it? It scared the life out of me the first time I spoke to someone that had been published a few times and I wonder who it was, maybe it was Melissa Lee Horton. But this idea of me sort of saying, when do you, in terms of just, in terms of volume, when do you feel like you've probably got enough to show to a publisher? And yeah. I think this person said, well, if you think in terms of like 100, 120 poets, mm -hmm. I was like, what? Yeah. But the point of the, whoever this poet was, was that, yeah, you've got 50 or 60 to go in a book and another 50 or 60 that just didn't quite work out. But yeah. you need, to, you can't just be thinking, right, I'm going to knock out 60, you know, or however many poems go into a collection. It, it, that's not how the process works. Not at all. For every one that might work you've got maybe one and a half that don't yeah. if not more of course you know and then and that it doesn't even include the, the various drafts of, all, of yeah. all those poems you know and then sometimes i'll find i'll i'll have a poem and i just can't finish it for whatever reason and but i'll have an inkling that somehow or i'll just i'll keep writing the final lines and they will just feel false in some way they'll just feel like they're not, they're not making the poem come to life. And I won't know why. And so I just have to put it in a drawer. And maybe it's, maybe it's because I haven't lived whatever it is or thought whatever it is that I, that I need to be able to come back to that poem and, and, and know who it is. It's, so we go back to that kind of metaphor of the, um, you need a big block of marble to make a statue out of. So, so in that, if that first draft is, yeah, this big kind of a block of material and then you're sculpting it into, a person into a face that's say that's what the poem is and you're and you're kind of going all right what who are you like what do you look like and then you'll get down to the 
seventh draft and you'll see like a face staring back at you but somehow you you don't recognize them yet you don't know what you and you might have to like go away uh, for six months and then you come back and you just slightly like make an alteration to the nose and then you're like oh there you are you've been there the whole time and yeah when you finish a poem it's all about kind of discovery it's it's a feeling of recognition but of like of like uh, something you didn't know you knew often or someone you didn't you know where you're like i've met you before someone said that recently <laughs> a poem should teach the author something yeah. that they didn't realize they knew exactly and i think it's a really beautiful point yeah. in that sometimes i feel i've often found that things that i've written that i'm most content with sort of feel like they couldn't be in any other form yeah and i'd not really this is probably an important thing to talk about as well some it's often you know how I mean, we've been talking about that but yeah that thing of like you don't always know yourself how not only do you not know how poems you like by other people work but sometimes you don't always completely understand no. why something you've written has come together yeah. in a way that is. it's just everything has a line in your life and i spoke to helen Mort about this about this idea of ideas germinating her, in, germinating in her head and and she was very open about how slow her writing process can be mm. sometimes and how a nagging feeling will eventually work its way forward and will become something that sometimes it will become a poem. And I was reading something recently about how to be a good conversationalist, and apparently you should have callbacks, and that's why stand-ups put it in their show. And I'd like to finish on something which ties in to the beginning of the conversation, and because we're talking about writing process, I just would like to finish on by asking, was there, if any, uh, any pressure build-up reaching your fifth collection in terms of pressure towards... Um, not, it's probably a good point to make anyway, but not towards a publisher because they've obviously got faith in you, yeah. but expectations of audience and expectation that you might put on yourself as an artist. So I think there's two sides to it. There's, there is an element of relaxation having written five books because it makes you think, well, it's probably not a fluke. I can probably do this and I probably... Like written enough that people think I'm a poet, even if they don't like anything I've written. And I'm allowed to teach poetry courses and, and teach teenagers and pass that on. And so there's, there's, a, there's a safety in terms of the, the job. If it's as safe as being a poet can ever be, like the fact that it's the most unwise profession in terms of, from the bank's opinion, especially. But then, there's the secret side of it where you go, you know, I don't, I don't know if I can write another poem. Like, I don't know if I'm going to get better. I don't know if I'm going to get worse. I, there's no certainty in terms of what's going to rise to the surface of that pond, you know. But all I know is that I, I want to keep changing. Like, I feel secure enough I think in the fact that I'm, I can't escape myself to know that I can experiment with different approaches and it'll still sound like me but I've got no interest in trying to recreate what I've done before and I've got in terms of prizes and things like that 
Yeah, you do, you, you, you do end up wanting those things after the book is finished. And, and it's quite scary to want it because no one goes into poetry for, you know, the money and the fast cars and the fame, you know, that doesn't make any sense. And so it's bizarre when you feel that need for like recognition in yourself, it feels ugly. And I hope that I won't, that won't become a major part of, of, of my head, but you know, I'm very, I'm, I'm far from perfect. So I'm sure it'll drag me down at various points, but genuinely the best bit of writing still for me is mid poem when I'm, I'm hooked in, I know it's, I know it's going somewhere. It's a bit like with windsurfing when you're in the harness and you're in, and, and, and you're in the footstraps and you're, and you're just hanging on, you know, and, and, and obviously you're having to use like all your like skill and muscle memory, but also you're planing, you're, you're going somewhere. And there's the excitement of that discovery and not knowing what, image your next image is going to generate or the exciting bit of when your mind is super alert to language and you find yourself seeing words on signs and words in books and writing them down and going oh I can use that and use that and and kind of being in the the middle of the broth and I I just want to keep on finding new ways to feel like that and I think teaching is really important as, as, as help to help with that because when I was 13 and first went on a on a poetry course at the Arvin Foundation and found fellow poets who also wrote in secret we realized that we could be a secret society together and I felt so honored to be able to be a part of that world and to and to have you know be read 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 poems and have them speak to me and even though I couldn't watch an 18 film I could read Howl by Allen Ginsberg and have access to all this rage and bitterness and lust and regret and 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 I felt so grateful you know I felt like this could save my life you know and and throughout my whole life even when everything else has fallen away or made no sense. That poetry has been the one constant that has always made sense to me because because it, there's no um, you know expectation for it to make any sense. So I want to hang on to that sense of fucking hell. I'm so lucky, and the only way to do that is to keep on teaching and 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 sharing that. It's bizarre, isn't it, when you feel passionate about something and then you, and you express it and and on some level. It's not quite communicating the full um, extent of your feelings. I think I may have interviewed more than 120 poets and I've never spoken to someone so obviously enthusiastic about poetry. And it's actually made me feel a bit emotional, actually. It's really beautiful. Um, Well, it's weird because uh, being enthusiastic is... uh, It feels really unsafe, doesn't it? Because it's so uncool. I mean, sometimes I don't think it can, you're it can, ever more vulnerable. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think when I do slip into that place of thinking about achievement and whether or not I will be recognised, I, I go into the opposite side of myself. You go into that kind of, oh, I'm sitting back in a chair and let me tell you about poetry now. And for me, that's... That's not where the love for poetry came from at all. It came from the leaning in and the not knowing, the not knowing anything. 
<laughs> you know, just like the in the Winslow Zimborska speech. And so, if I start feeling too, too relaxed, too established, to any of those things, I'm gonna stop being able to do it. You know, and and I'm gonna lose the kind of the only bit of myself that I've always, you know, thought was worth something. It's a, it's a bizarre. I wonder whether wonder how many other professions have the have the potential downfall like enclosed in the success. This idea that once you start thinking you can do it, you will stop being able to do it. <laughs> you know, uh, that's Sorry, the closest I'm, I can get to an answer. I'm just nodding like a dull-eyed Disney princess. <laughs> I couldn't be in. I'm, I'm in love with what you're saying. I think it's amazing. I think it's the perfect place to stop. Okay, good. Because um, <laughs> it's hard to move on from talking about things like that. Thank you so much. It's Pleasure. been really wonderful talking to you. And I was worried I'd built it up a bit too much in my head, having read this collection so closely to interviewing you. We're going to finish with a poem, please. Oh, yeah. Okay. I think I'll read Megan Married Herself. Megan Married Herself. She arrived at the country mansion in a silver limousine. She'd sent out invitations and everything. Her name written twice with an and in the middle. The calligraphy of coupling. She strode down the aisle to at last by Etta James. Faced the celebrant like a keen soldier reporting for duty. Her voice shaky yet sure. I do. I do. You may now kiss the mirror. Applause. Confetti. Every single one of the 140 guests deemed the service unimprovable, especially the vows. So from the heart. Her wedding gown was ivory, pointedly off-white. After all, we have shared a bed for 32 years, she quipped in her first speech. So I'm hardly virginal, if you know what I mean. No one knew exactly what she meant. Not a soul questioned their devotion. You only had to look at them, hand cupped in hand, smiling out of the same eyes. You could sense their secret language, bone deep, blended blood. One guest eyed his wife, hovering harmlessly at the bar, and imagined what his life might have been if he'd responded years ago to that offer in his head. I am the only one who will ever truly understand you. Marry me, Derek. I love you. Marry me. At the time, he hadn't taken his proposal seriously. He recharged his champagne flute, watched the newlywed cut her five-tiered cake, both hands on the knife. Is it too late for us to try? Derek whispered to no one, as the bride glided herself onto the dance floor, taking turns first to lead then follow. Thank you very much. And if anyone heard a little bit of wailing in the background there, that was Caroline's cat. <laughs> because in my mind, we have completely unreasonably asked them to be quiet for an hour and 20 minutes. Yeah. And it's completely fine that they Yeah, and they don't decided, respect that. No. No. Thank you so much, Caroline. It's been pleasure. an absolute Thank pleasure. You. This has been, it's one of these uh, occasions in which I can't understand why everyone isn't just making podcasts and chatting to people that they really like. Thank you.